Thoth's Hermes podcast. Welcome to the world of the Western esoteric tradition. Friends and listeners, welcome to episode 7 of season 9 of the Thoughts Hermes podcast. Today is Sunday, October the 30th, and this is your host and creator of the show, Rudolf. I am speaking to you from the outskirts of lovely Vienna, the Austrian capital. My guest today is Robert Gordon, and we are going to speak about Rosicrucianism, but not just Rosicrucianism's history. Yes, we cover that as well, but we speak about 21st century's Rosicrucianism and the future not only of Rosicrucianism, but with Rosicrucianism. And it's my great pleasure to have you all back here on the show to welcome those who are new to the show as well. And uh, I'm sure we are going to having an enjoyable two hours together to uh, to listen to Robert, what he has to say. And uh, I would like, before we go into that, would like to say thank you to, once again, to Emily. I mentioned her already last week that she is now covering the newsletters and uh, those writings that I need for the website, etc. And um, so together with my friend Ursula, who is doing that also from time to time, like she did for more than 70 episodes before that. So the two will do that together now in once uh, once in a while, Ursula and the others will be done by Emily. So that's really great. Thank you all, both of you, Emily and Ursula for your work to support the show and talking about support. Yes, please do become a patron. It's necessary to keep that show going. And thanks you to those who are already patrons and make it possible for all the others. And uh, while we are talking about that, why not go to the website and leave me a note, leave me uh, a voicemail or uh, some feedback on the contact form that would be nice and um, it's nice to be in touch with the audience and while you're on the website you know those of you who are regulars you know already you find all the episodes we have done so far there with all the show notes quite impressive by the time now um, that what you can find there so do not miss out on that but of course the most important is to listen to my guests here on the show and when we talk about Rosicrucian utopia here today. I often call my listeners also for music and I do that again. Please come up with your music. I have had two people coming up recently, so you'll hear their music soon. But but today's today's um, uh, guest, uh, Robert Gordon, and we've had that before, but that's almost al- always very special when that happens. He also produces music and um Yes, many of those occultists are artists in different fields, not only in the occult arts, arts, but also in performing arts or music or uh, artists like Marlene Seven Bremner we had recently. So um, 
Yes, uh, and Robert, he has come up to me saying, hey, when you interview me, why don't we play also my music? And I said, yes, great, please, please, let's do that. And that's what we do here today. And even better, um, Robert, I recorded with him a short two-minute intro to the music we're going to hear here today. So firsthand, you will get now a little intro into the music, very meditative music, very fitting to the Rosicrucian subject, I believe. And the first piece that we are going to listen to uh, is called Hypnagogia. And um, he will tell you about his music now. And after that little intro into Robert Gordon's music, we're going to hear directly Hypnagogia. So now listen to Robert and enjoy him and his music. This music is was all recorded on modular synthesizers, so it's it's all a live performance actually. And the creation of this music was really something that I started to get into, almost like a meditative exercise. Um, when you're creating something with modular synthesizers, you've got patch cables flying around everywhere, sending electrical signals, modulating different sounds. Everything's looping around and around until you start to find those sweet spots whereby the melodies and the music starts to emerge and then you're very slowly tweaking things and adjusting things and and you can hear these pieces grow over time as i've learned to kind of control um the the patches and the setups that, that have been created so there's three tracks that we're, we're going to be playing and they all relate to different kinds of spiritual contemplative experiences the first one's titled Hypnagogia, the second one is titled uh, Conjunctio, and the third and final one is These Beautiful Lights. And rather than go into the meaning of them, I think I'll let them speak for themselves. But I think anybody would recognize what they're speaking to who are interested in the more kind of esoteric or mystical side of things. But the important thing really is that they were performative pieces. These were recorded live they're one track, one take, and then they're just slightly mastered to make sure everything's properly balanced afterwards, but there's no arrangements on the computer or anything. So they're very raw, um, and I hope you, you enjoy them and you can use them as, as the kind of meditative, contemplative tools that, that they were for me when I was creating them. Thank you. 
Hypnagogia, created by our guest Robert Gordon. And I think this music already shows that when we talk to Robert about 21st century Rosicrucianism, this is not going to be only oriented to history and to what has been done in tradition and will be necessary to keep up that tradition. Yes, of course, it's about tradition. It's, of course, about um, faith and, and what Rosicrucianism is. But he is very turned also towards the future. And I would like to read you a short excerpt from his book, um, which we are going to talk about as well, 21st Century Rosicrucianism, published by uh, Louis Masonic recently, a couple of months ago. And here comes a short excerpt from that book. The context we find ourselves in today is one in which the entire basis of the human condition and evolution is shifting into a new phase of existence and agency. We are now at the turning point in which our technology and scientific endeavors will soon be able to direct the path of our future biological and intellectual forms. This covers everything from alterations to our genetics, extension of lifespan, adjustments to biochemistry, and enhancements to our physical capabilities. Through to neural implants that connect us to artificial intelligence and the library of human knowledge in the synthesis with technology previously only dreamed of. If it was free will that marked a test of faith in millennia past, we haven't seen anything yet. In many ways, we are approaching the heights of occult transformation and the promises of alchemy in its most physical manner, immortality, omniscience, and the power to change shape and form. This turning point should not be underestimated or merely seen as steady progress towards an unknown future. Rather, it requires a mature and highly developed spiritual component in order to understand the metaphysical, philosophical, and emotional gravity of what is occurring around us and what we are increasingly accepting will happen to and within ourselves. As has long been understood, but perhaps not quite in this way, our current physical forms are not the final and only kind of existence that we will inhabit. At this point in human history and evolution, we can see the changes that are about to take place and the practical roadmap is starting to be laid out. However, we need to recognize that it is currently one that is primarily dictated by international power structures, whether they be government or corporate, without much consultation or even seemingly any forethought as to the likely endpoints. Rosicrucianism is particularly suited to addressing this. Well, you see, I don't think I promised you too much. And um, we're going to talk about this part of the subject, mostly in part two of the interview. Uh, but also we give a little overview of Rosicrucian history over the last few centuries. Um, in the first part, well, we do, especially Robert does, of course, in a very brilliant way. In a few minutes, he's able to tell you the history. And um, well, I think you're really going to enjoy this talk. I won't keep you any longer. Without further ado, let's go and meet Robert Gordon, actually in Italy. That's where we he was when we recorded this interview. So let's go and meet Robert Gordon. Here comes 
the interview. It is my great pleasure here today on the Thoughts Harmonies podcast to welcome Frater Robert Gordon. Robert Gordon, who has just released uh, his book, 21st Century Rosicrucianism, with Louis Masonic, well, a couple of months ago, I believe. And um, I was lucky enough to get a copy of that book and was really fascinated by it. And already by the title, 21st Century Rosicrucianism, something you're not necessarily in the very first place bring together uh, of course we have Rosic we all know that Rosicrucianism is an active uh, an active um, well I will ask Bob what active it is um, but um, still uh, it is rather noted as something more traditional more living in the past so let's speak about today's Rosicrucianism Robert Gordon it's very good to have you here on Thoughts Hermes hello oh thank you for having me I was, I was delighted uh, to be able to speak with you I'm a big fan of your shows. So. Oh, that's kind. Thank you. Thank you. Well, um, uh, is it Bob or Robert? What do you prefer? I prefer Robert. Rob, not Bob. Okay. Maybe maybe Slight that's I'm, I'm slightly okay. slightly younger than than the Bobs. But um, Robert is fine. Yes, anything you'd like, really. Uh, okay, sorry. I said Bob once. I will not repeat that. I'm sorry about that. Um, well, I don't want to step good, on the Robert, on the toes so, of uh, Bob Gilbert, of course, who's, who's another well-known author. But I think he he can be the oh, Bob. Oh yes, he can be the Bob in this field. <laughs> You're quite right. So, Robert, um, before we start to talk about the book about Rosicrucianism in general, um, I would like to ask you. How did you become the Robert Golden that you are today? What uh, brought uh, Rosicrucianism and maybe a general Western, the Western tradition into your life? What were your first experiences and how did it develop throughout the years that you have passed with it so far? Yeah, certainly. I think like most people, it's quite a, a long story, really. So I, I'm in my early 40s now and was really drawn to these things even before being a teenager, necessarily. Just um, seeing these things on bookshelves as, as an 11-year-old, 12-year-old, picking up the first little bits and pieces uh, even at that early age. And just in the books I was reading, um, I was always drawn to the more Western esoteric side of things. And then you would start hearing the names of certain people, um, Eliphas Levy, A. Waite, uh, these kind of McGregor Mathers, the, the Golden Dawn, of course, is something you come across very early on. And then, sure. and then you start to uh, Amork probably as well. Um, I was uh, growing up in Australia. Amork was around. I, I would um, see some flyers and things like that, but that was that was actually a mm. bit later. So it was more it was more seeing things about the Golden Dawn, um, which in the kind of nineties nineteen nineties that was becoming a more popular topic. Books were coming out that was becoming quite popular at that time, and and so I. It just kind of got in front of my curious teenage brain, really. And and then I uh, did the kind of usual thing, um, dallying with the likes of Crowley and people like that, but but ended up veering into uh, Freemasonry. And, and Freemasonry for me... As a 21-year-old at the time, the earliest I could I could join without having any family members involved, 
was really a way for me to do two things. One, I was studying anthropology at the time as an undergrad, and, and that's a lot of what you do in religious anthropology, at least, is studying rites of passage, initiation, rituals, things like that. And there's a very clear concept of um, uh, participant observation. So if you really want to understand something, you kind of have to go and participate in it in some way. And I was always drawn to the, the discussions about ritual and initiations and, and was looking around thinking, well, where is somewhere where I can experience that in, in a very kind of modern uh, Melbourne, uh, very, uh, you know, the rites of passage and initiation weren't exactly parts of our average <laughs> growing up experience. Um, I, my, my family wasn't, wasn't very religious. And, and so I, I was kind of a Christian just by default. Um, and, and that would, I would grow into that later. But at the time it was more just an understanding of the mysterious, the evocative, the mystical, a calling to that, and then wanting to experience initiation. So I went into Freemasonry and experienced that and um, really just got a lot out of it. And, and then the second reason why I joined Freemasonry was because I had heard of this order, the SRIA, Societas Rosicruciana in Anglia, which again, those, those same kind of people that was coming up in the books all seemed to, to become draw back to the golden dawn and, and from there the SRA so that was drawn into Freemasonry to both experience initiation and also join this order that I'd heard so much about and from there um, the kind of personal explorations into these things run in parallel with the more fraternal uh, group based exploration of things um, various uh, kinds of different orders and Martinism other things come out over the years um, and then later on other Rosicrucian orders such as the Order of the Rosen Cross and also A. Waits Fellowship of the Rosy Cross which has a lot of mystical and contemplative depth and, and has really been something very uh, influential in my, in my life more recently. So these things kind of emerged naturally. It was really about hearing that calling. First of all, hearing that calling to the mysterious, the evocative, those kind of um, spaces in empty churches that call you forward as a young teen and you want to, you're, you're kind of drawn into them. And then that starts drawing you closer and closer to the more esoteric occult side of things where you, you hear word about hidden mysteries and, and secret knowledge. And that, as, as a young person, that's very evocative and very exciting. And then you start to kind of get involved in these things. You realize often it can be quite mundane in its practice and you, you kind of have a bit of a contrast there. But then through the more practical side of things and actually putting some of this stuff into practice, both through experiencing various initiations themselves, but also doing devotional and other kinds of esoteric practices, then suddenly the rose starts to unfold and that calling just gets deeper and deeper. And I've just been following that still voice within since a young child, really. And it has brought me here today uh, with with this book and involvement in various orders um, that have become quite important to my life. Yes, it is one of those paths that you hear regularly, but still each of those paths is very personal and very particular and development steps. And 
or rather, as you just said, the word unfolding steps are interesting. You, I want to do to pick you up on that word because you just said the rose starts to unfold. Of course, the, the image of the rose in that context is very speaking, but unfolding as opposed to developing or stepping up the grades or whatever you want to call it in other contexts, this unfolding is very part, very much a part of the concept of Rosicrucianism in general. Can you maybe give us a bit more about that, about that word and what it means in that very context? Yes, I, I think it's a process of self-discovery, but it's also a process of entering into those spaces that you have the meeting spaces you have within your own consciousness and uh, with the metaphysical sides of reality. And that, that feels to me, it's not like you're entering into it in grades. It is an unfolding. It is emergent. It's something that sometimes you actually take steps backwards in, <laughs> in order to step forwards. It's, um, it's something that you learn those very subtle parts of your consciousness and the landscape within and how it connects to metaphysical and, and realms of divine inspiration and, and, and uh, universal love and all of these kind of evocative terms, which you start to grow an appreciation of because you, you slowly start to hear them or experience them. And that just opens it up a little bit more. And then maybe you can kind of rest in that space and then you start to hear a little bit more and that helps you. I find a lot of these things are so incredibly subtle that I like that word unfolding because it, it feels slow and it feels gradual and it feels it's purposeful as well. It's that kind of, I'm going to sit in this place and, and listen to what comes back, but be an active participant in it. Um, and so for me, it, it has been, you know, a very gradual unfolding. It's, it's been over 20 years now since, since kind of hearing that call and starting to follow it to where it goes. And, and as, as you go along that path, I find that you, things like um, faith, things like your life in the spirit, things like that, you start to become more comfortable with because it starts to become more experiential. So that's why I use that word unfolding. It's very experiential. It's not, it's not just someone handing you the keys and you unlock a door and walk through it. it, it you have to kind of rest in it, sit in it, be in it, act in it. And over time, you start to actually understand perhaps what it is you're doing. Um, and then the second you think you understand anything, you have to reassess again because uh, there's a new kind of experience in there that you have to kind of reconcile. So that's why I use that term. It's, it's very slow, very gradual, but it does unfold at that kind of in Rosicrucian terms at the center of the cross. And it does unfold within that space of faith and, and experience of the divine. And, and that's where it's, you're slowly resting within that meeting point between your consciousness and the metaphysical realms. Mm -hmm. And to me, man, I mean, I don't know if you see it the same way, but the unfolding is not only the, the, the rose itself, as you said, but when the cube unfolds to become uh, the cross. The cross, right? yes. I, yeah. I don't know uh, if everybody understands what I mean, but when you have a cube um, that's very much the material world, the symbol of the material world, and then it, it 
unfolds a cube and it becomes a cross, uh, where in the center we find the rose in the end. Um, that's the type of unfolding where the material world unfolds to become the spiritual side, uh, but still being the part of the material. So I, I find that also very nice type of unfolding yes exactly i think i've always felt that language is very important and uh, and i think mm, absolutely and and you can kind of it's lovely that we can pick apart something that's so subtle and deep just with one word as opposed to another word and that would take us down different directions so there is a magic in language quite literally going back to the kind of formation of culture and civilization and and these things all all have purpose and meaning in in their nuance that's why names are often so important absolutely um i'm going to ask you a few more language things on this interview i'm sure um but let's let's first hear you a little bit i mean our listeners here are mostly quite well versed in that in that area maybe not particularly on rosicrucianism but in, in the western tradition in general but still maybe it might be a good reminder we don't have to go to explain the pharma and the confessio in detail but maybe we can Give a brief overview uh, before we come to the 21st century Rosicrucianism that you talk about in your book. Just a brief over look over the last five centuries, if you if you if you want, if you can. I'll, I'll certainly give it a go. Potted histories of Rosicrucianism is always kind of a fun thing, but um, I, I preface all of this to say that I'm not approaching it as an academic. Um, so this has come out of being a practitioner who is interested in all of these things. So you know, forgive me the more academically minded if if i'm using a rather broad brush at times but um that's that's right okay <laughs> so i mean rosicrucianism emerges really in germany and austria in in the 17th century and the publication of the farmers there's a group of people and there's various discussions about who those people might be but in the kind of decade preceding their publication in in the early 17th century there's a group of people who are really coming from that Christian, Protestant, particularly Lutheran perspective and integrating that with the Hermeticism and the Kabbalah and um, a little bit later the alchemy as well that was emerging through the likes of Ficino and Bruno and people like that coming through northern Italy. And it's um, I've heard it put, um, I think it was Anton Favre, who put it this way, but that um, Rosicrucianism was the meeting of, of Hermeticism with Christian Lutheranism through Paracelsus. So it's this, it's this interesting melting pot of Christian Protestantism um, with that kind of healing-based Paracelsian uh, conception of, of macrocosm, microcosm, the elements, and, all, and then with all that hermetic, neoplatonic side of things. So it gives a very kind of Christian flavor to a lot of that material. And, and uh, from there... The second half of the 17th century was really, and this is part of what I love about Rosicrucianism, was really all the people who felt called to it helping define what it was. So the great mystery of Rosicrucianism, although we think from an academic perspective we've kind of solved who, who first wrote these things, was that it was published anonymously. It is 
formulating the concept that there's some fraternity at the core of this. So orders and fraternities have always been at the heart of Rosicrucianism. But as far as we know, although there's a few claims otherwise, any kind of letters or calls to join or anything like that were met pretty much with silence. So what ends up happening is that people start taking this this um, mystery of Rosicrucianism and starting to create their own meaning around it. And I find that um, part of its strength because it becomes a living tradition very quickly. So the likes of Michael Meyer and Robert Flood and Elias Ashmole and people like that start to really bring it um, into contact with alchemy, into contact with Kabbalah, and from there, different groups and orders start forming the Golden Rosenkreuz Order in the 18th century. Um, you even have various examples in of communities in as far as Pennsylvania kind of taking up these things when the pietist communities go over to Pennsylvania with the Jacob Boma type influences and the and um so it starts to spread in amongst all of these things that are emerging out of out of Europe at the time. And then it, it goes through various different phases, um, cutting, cutting forward quite a bit into the kind of mid-19th century. We then, of course, have the formation of the SRIA and uh, from there, the Golden Dawn. And the Golden Dawn, as we all are aware of, comes to define Western esotericism in many ways in the 20th century, mm-hmm. um, or at least in its more kind of publicly accessible. And um, uh, it, it just it just comes to collate a lot of the things that, that happened in the past into one system that then becomes published and then, and then for better or worse, kind of comes to, to really define the, the conversation throughout much of the 20th century. Um, and and then we we have various there's so many orders today dozens of them out there um and other examples that i didn't mention in the 19th century like uh, peladan and his salon de la rose croix a very important um artistic movement a symbolist artistic movement so i'm jumping around a bit here but really just to say that I've always been fascinated with Rosicrucianism for a couple of reasons. One is that kind of anonymous forming of it that allowed it to be quite decentralized so people would take it and go with it in different directions. Um, and secondly, that it seems to keep kind of popping its head up above the esoteric parapet, shall we say. And um, by doing so becomes one of the ways that almost like the public get to engage with esotericism or at least get to hear about it, hear snippets about it. And often that is through these kind of Rosicrucian groups. And so I've just always found that dynamic quite interesting. It's both deeply esoteric and involved in a lot of very practical things, uh, but it is, it is also at various points in time has certain exoteric kind of touch points and and so I like that it's um mm-hmm. you know and and sometimes that that veers into uh, you know more commercialized areas or things like that in the 20th century as well and then there's certain debate of, over whether that ultimately has a positive or negative effect of course but Rosicrucianism has in many ways come to be seen as synonymous 
with Western esotericism, um, you know, it's, it's quite a broad brush to use, of course. And, um, and then we, today we really see it, uh, start to, to come out in various different ways, whether some of them are quite mystical, many of them are quite mystical, I would say. There's still a few which, which see themselves as, as very practically magical or ceremonial. And, and then there's ver- various others which, which tend to veer into alchemical uh, practices and, and um, both internal alchemy, but also laboratory alchemy is being kept alive in this day and age through many kind of Rosicrucian circles. Um, and, and so I find all of that just a very fascinating thing um, throughout the whole thread of Western esotericism from the 17th century onwards, you tend to find Rosicrucianism somewhere. <laughs> and um, so it's, it's been a vessel that has helped these things continue on through time. And I think in, in that very kind, you know, there are other vessels as well, of course, but this is one that, that helps harbor that very ecumenical uh, Christian mysticism approach to the esoteric mysteries of, of Europe. Yeah, yeah. Well, thank you. That was a great overview, and and in, in relatively short time, and impressive how you did that. Thank you. Um, two things that you that you mentioned here, I already had also uh, noted uh, to ask you about two things, two approaches of Rosicrucianism uh, in the broad sense. Uh, I find particularly interesting and fascinating also in regards to the 21st century where we will come to um one being the healing thing you mentioned paracelsus which uh, is a nice link to make in that sense but healing throughout rosicrucianism has always been a very important part of it right um only few hermeticists uh, have tried that approach without Rosicrucianism. I'm thinking particularly of Kremers, who we had here. Well, not him, but we talked about him in the show a few weeks ago. Um, uh, he took another path. But um, in general, the healing bit is very important. Why, why is that? Is that a purely Christian thing? Or why do you think it's so important in, in the Rosicrucian aspect? Yeah, so in the original Pharma Fraternitatis, there's a number of kind of articles that, that are essentially saying this is who we are and this is what we do. And, and the first and most primary, it says, is to cure the sick and that gratis. So at the very core of whatever this tradition you would call Rosicrucianism is from its, from its first announcing texts it says we're here to cure the sick and importantly the second part of that and that gratis gratis and at the time i think that had a somewhat more literal perspective so they were quite openly um against people who were peddling either fake false physic medicine uh, physic they would kind of refer to it as um or were being very extortionate with the way they would they would use these healing practices hence hence this concept to provide these things freely and so they were really trying to rally against a lot of charlatans a lot of people exploiting these practices as medicine was really emerging and again this is this kind of proto enlightenment 
era, um, as science was really starting to become more established, they were seeing these things as as both a a public service and a duty, and I think a lot of that does come from a, a religious sense of of duty, but also importantly as a kind of a scientific or at least honest um, approach that was trying as much as possible to be to be relatively methodical and in what they were doing and to use these things in a way that wasn't just seeking personal wealth power and and gain so yeah so that's why healing has always been very important to rosicrucianism um, because and what i like is over time of course the concept of what curing the sick means starts to broaden out and and particularly in the last 100 years 150 years even it's come to really be talking about a lot of the psychological sicknesses a lot of the cultural sicknesses that we face um, as a society as a whole and i think that's what helps make it still relevant today obviously the, the question of modern medicine has solved plenty if not all of the issues that they were facing at the time in regards to their their seeking to reform the the sphere of physic or medicine um but that doesn't mean that there aren't a lot of sicknesses that we can help speak into and help heal and um and i think that's a big part of how I see Rosicrucianism is still relevant today. Is it, is it okay? And the other part, and that's, I believe, related, um, I was wondering, um, and especially when we then speak about the 21st century, but already in the, in the second half of the 20th century, that would be true. Um, is it still solely a Christian thing or is it wider nowadays? Uh, what is the concept of divine and that relationship with God that it speaks about today? Of course, in the 17th century, this was already revolutionary enough to speak the way they spoke. Uh, um, to us in the 21st century, uh, it might get another color right um, what's what's your take on that yeah I, i think it's it even started to broaden away from christianity at the late 19th early 20th century even um mm-hmm. now there's a discussion here to be had about how much can you broaden away from something until you become something else um that is that is influenced by it and but takes it off in its own direction And so there is something about, well, what does the word Rosicrucian mean, rosy cross, if you get rid of the Christian angle of things and you're talking in a very uh, more universalist or even in certain cases kind of pluralist or hermetic um, conception, maybe you should be talking about hermeticism or maybe you should be talking about something else. But ultimately... A lot of the expressions of Rosicrucianism today are still Christian focused. They still use very clear Christian. I mean, in the farmer, again, in the vault of Rosenkreutz is, is a is a tablet and that has the words Jesus, me, omnia, Jesus is everything to me. These things still have meaning and still have important resonance. Now I'm speaking from a mystical perspective. I'm speaking from mm. a Christian mystical perspective, not a dogmatic perspective. I think that's important. But I think ultimately Rosicrucianism is inherently Christian 
but it has found itself expressed in in many uh, ecumenical universalist ways and that is again to its strength and that is part of the decentralized nature of it that is part of the fact that people can speak into what rosicrucianism is uh, from their own perspectives and expertise and uh, experience and if that resonates that resonates and if things are resonating spiritually with people it's it's almost always for a good reason and and so those those threads of it go off into their various directions those waves of resonance oscillate through time and history and space and they find others who'll help mm. bolster them and and so it has become many different things. Uh, I personally still feel that it, it is inherently Christian, but it is not a dogmatic evangelical form of Christianity. And when I say that, I'm talking about Christ consciousness. I'm talking about the Christ within. I'm talking about, um, you know, very esoteric concepts of what incarnation and resurrection might be. Uh, but it's it's an interesting question that that is being had quite widely at the moment, I think. Um, and most most Rosicrucian orders, even if they have Christian um, membership requirements or they, they say, you know, we are an, a Christian order. So just be aware of that before you join. I think there's nothing wrong with saying that. But mm -hmm. they're, they're relatively open these days in, in having that conversation. I, I don't come across too many dogmatic Rosicrucians who are teaching a very kind of literal biblical form of Christianity. I don't think that's how it's mm -hmm. expressed. And you are also talking about the Christ and not Jesus, which of course is, especially in the mystical context, a very big difference. So just True. I mean, in, in the kind of esoteric context, of course, it often comes down to, to notions of Yeheshua. Um, and, and so that, that starts to have a whole different conversation about the Tetragrammaton and, and then the Pentagrammaton. And, and so there's a lot of depth there to, to unpack, um, which, which I think we're all kind of aware of where that can take us and and it is a very effective system of of mysticism definitely is um within your little history your short history uh, you didn't mention two people i just want to well we couldn't talk about everyone but i'm just interested in those two in particular uh, rudolf steiner in europe and i always call his, his american twin max heindel uh, um uh, american so to speak but um, but um what about their type of rosicrucianism is that very different from what you are talking about or how do you see that I, I see it again as this kind of un, unfolding of Rosicrucianism down different directions. So Rudolf Steiner, mm. very influenced from the theosophical movements of theosophical society. And I think his work has been quite impressive in the way that he has really tried to grapple with the question of how do these things change society as a whole? I think that's very relevant. Mm -hmm. So his, his look at kind of ecological concerns, agricultural concerns, his look at education, which still is very influential today and a lot of people speak very highly of. I think of these examples of when you take something like Rosicrucianism and you say, well, how does this apply to society? How does this apply to the structures at a larger scale, not just my own personal spiritual development or the spiritual development of a small group of people, but how does this stuff actually oscillate out and change the world? Um, 
and Max Heindel, I know less about, but again, his work tends tends to go down that kind of Christian esotericism route. Um, and I know that there are some offshoots um, of, of his work that are, are very highly influential in, in the, the kind of academic and archival studies of, of a lot of these texts. And so, yes, I... I I think Rosicrucianism, it's almost these days a term like weather. It, it has a lot of things underneath it. <laughs> um, and so it's, it's a large umbrella that can refer to a lot of different things. Um, one of the things we're, we're seeing a lot more of these days, I think, is a lot of cross-fertilization between different groups or people who, who consider themselves Rosicrucian. I think particularly the last couple of years when everyone's getting more used to, to Zoom meetings and online discussion groups and things like that. And I know this has been going on for a long time in various forums and other things, but it's really started to bring people together and we're not necessarily asking the question or what lineage are you from and is it legitimate where we're talking about the ideas and we're talking about how to implement them and that's what really starts to matter absolutely and i also think that's one of the few good things that happened to us during the last two years with the pandemic and what it brought to us mm. Right, now let's take our musical break. And as you already know, the music, the meditative music, the almost trance-like music that we're also going to hear throughout this show is by Robert Gordon, who is my interview guest here today on the show. So I don't think I have to say too much because he already introduced his music before the first piece. Um, this second piece is called conjunctio and uh, we are then going to return to speak to Robert a lot about also the future of what I introduced in the intro to the interview about the future of Rosicrucianism in the 21st century and beyond and um, well we have another 42 minutes of the interview so it's a long interview here today and I think it's really worth it After the second part of the interview, I will play for you, or we will play for you, the third track, These Beautiful Lights, it is called. So it's a kind of an evolution of those three pieces throughout the show here today. The order was also suggested, selected and suggested by Robert Gordon. So it would be really nice if you listen to all three pieces of music. I know many of you do, others prefer to stop after the interview. Carry on, it's interesting to have that music with you. And uh, yes, yeah, so Conjunctio, then the second part of the interview, and after that, these beautiful lights. And after that, I will tell you who will be our guest on episode number eight next week. Enjoy.
Well, the last couple of minutes brought us directly to the present and maybe the future. And where that, of course, makes me take your book in hand again, the 21st century Rosicrucianism, why we, that's why we are here. And the book itself, um, I think it's, it's a collection of talks that you gave over the last 10 or so years uh, um, uh, on Rosicrucianism at different occasions. And um, I would like to concentrate a little bit on the first part of that book. Hey, we don't want to give away the whole book to people. People should buy and it and read it. But um, also because it, in my view, but uh, please help me with that, very well brings together what Rosicrucianism nowadays, or maybe always was, but nowadays can still be and should be. Um, and three terms um, stick out there for me. Uh, the personal practice, social engagement and spiritual retreat that's the three um yeah three three big chapters that you that you talk about and maybe we should start with the first of the three of course personal practice so apart from being member of one of those orders or several of those orders what does a personal practice in the 21st century for a rosicrucian uh look like and if you are not yet part of it but are interested how do you start into that personal practice yes certainly so in the book I, i've kind of drawn back to a lot of the earlier texts to look at the things they were involved with whether that was various forms of alchemy or theurgy but they also obviously talk a lot about prayer and and contemplation as is very central so in the book itself, I'm non-prescriptive and I'm very purposefully non-prescriptive because I think for any, anybody coming at this, they're going to be drawn to different things and they're going to be either more familiar or more comfortable with, with different forms of personal practice. But to me, when I say personal practice, this is that, that kind of rhythm of your life that where you're starting to create a devotional rhythm to your life that that helps you see everything else you're doing in your day-to-day -day life, or at least draw it back to more spiritual foundations. So these are things that you can do preferably every day, or at least very regularly, um, as regularly as possible. Some people do them every hour, you know, if, if they're particularly um, well, well versed in what they do. But it, okay. it will be different for different people. For myself, um, at this point in time, and again, it changes over time. For myself, the rosary is very important and the praying of the rosary. And uh, just using this as an example, of course, but by entering into the different mysteries of the rosary and then considering them from an esoteric perspective, an alchemical perspective, you're then taking time every day to not only be devotional and and put yourself in, in service of more spiritual form of life but you're contemplating on these this symbolism you're contemplating on these concepts and you're entering into them more deeply from both intellectual and and spiritual and experiential phases um 
But importantly, it's something that you're doing every day. You're taking 20 minutes, 40 minutes. You're, you're combining that with uh, various forms of meditation or contemplation or concentration exercises. Historically, the art of memory was, of course, very important to a lot of people connected to Rosicrucianism. So various forms of memory exercises are often used. But for me, it, it's that kind of daily practice will mean prayer, contemplation, devotional practices, meditative practices that are done on a regular basis to help you enter into a life that is guided by the rhythm of, of spirit and, and that connection with both nature and the divine. Mm -hmm. When I hear that, of course, it makes me and I'm sure many of our listeners here think, um, well, that sounds very much like many other approaches you take in all kinds of magical, ceremonial um, approaches to to spirituality. Let's uh, let's call it like that. Um, maybe with a more uh, Christian approach here again, you're talking about rosary or a more mystical approach, more concentration approach. Um, where's, where's for you the difference? I mean, um, I was surprised to hear the art of memory because I know this as being a, uh, particularly uh, Anglo-Saxon part of masonry as well. Um, uh, of course, coming from, uh, Renaissance Italy mm -hmm. in, initially, but, um, it's more practice in Anglo-Saxon masonry than elsewhere in masonry. I wasn't aware that this was also part of Rosicrucianism. So those two things, A, is it more Christianized magic, to be blunt, uh, or not? Is it something different? And why the art of memory in particular? Well, so let me start by saying that I'm here giving my kind of experience and, and view on these things. Every single order that that sees itself as Rosicrucian will approach these things differently. And in many ways, that kind of, um, uh, let's say, tension between mysticism and magic plays out in a lot of in the Rosicrucian sphere, as it does in any other esoteric sphere that I'm aware of. And there's various ones that, that say only mystical. There's various ones that lean very heavily down the ceremonial magical side. And there's some that, that seek to, to myself seek to walk both in that kind of middle, middle pillar path where ceremonial magic doesn't necessarily have much effect without the devotional rhythm underpinning it. And equally, the devotional stuff can get a bit too internal and without much external effect if you're not seeing it as a way to uh, interact with the, the macrocosm and the universe as a whole. So there's, uh, there's an interesting discussion to be had about that. Um, and ultimately, different orders will teach different things, but they boil back down to the usual hermetic practices, alchemy, Kabbalah, uh, contemplation, um, all of these kinds of things. It is part, Rosicrucianism is part of the hermetic milieu and it is all now so kind of cross-fertilized um, that they are all in many ways speaking about very similar things. So again, the art of memory, I say, really comes into play because Rosicrucianism is so heavily influenced by the likes of Giordano Bruno and then, of course, Robert Flood was very openly a Rosicrucian apologist, if not an, an active member of Rosicrucian societies. And, and so it comes out of these 
these practices, which are, and then going back to even the likes of Ficino, are um, consciously and purposefully engaging with the imaginative sphere and using that to explore reality, to explore nature, to explore our relationship with the divine and, and really getting to know the internals of our consciousness and the imaginative sphere with as much detail and granularity as we possibly can. And if, if these kind of traditions teach us anything, it is really about how powerful uh, these spaces can be once you start to understand how they're not only influencing you, but are a source of inspiration, creative inspiration, and in that uh, very uh, that kind of source of of life that comes through the imagination and creates things in the material world. Um, I was giving a, a talk recently, and someone mentioned, of course, the William Blake quote that everything which now exists was once imagined. Um, I'm paraphrasing there because they they brought it up, but it is about the art of memory is about learning more about that space and and the influence it can have on you not only that but it becomes a very useful tool <laughs> which can be used it, yeah. to, to learn things quite literally and and learn things in quite a lot of detail perhaps in this day and age we we don't quite need it as much for the learning side of things because we have all this technology that can hold all of these things for us but I think it really is about entering into that imaginative sphere and understanding that it's not fanciful, it's creative. And, and it is about the source of creation that yeah. exists within humanity. It's certainly a, a tool for visualization, I, I would imagine, and the art of memory and um, a tool for learning visualization. That's the way I have to put it. Definitely, yes. And also then in, in a more kind of spiritual sense and, and over time starts to become more visionary as well. And um, so these kinds of things that are very important to the esoteric traditions in general is, is how do new ideas and how do new symbolisms and how do new images of, of reality emerge through people um, over time? And those become little seeds of culture. Those become seeds of change. And these things have huge effects that can come out of, you know, one person sitting in a monastery in the Middle Ages somewhere suddenly creates an entire ripple through time that changes the the, the course of of how people are, are relating to God. I mean, these things are are very important, and and we sometimes diminish their importance. That's not saying that everybody needs to become these visionary prophets and act act as if as if they had something revolutionary to say at every point in time. That's dangerous in its own right. But I think we need to treat it with that level of respect and reverence because it certainly can have that influence. We, we can just never know for sure when or where that's necessarily going to happen. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, which will bring us in a moment to to the social engagement of, uh, of Rosicrucianism and its necessity. Um, but um, maybe we go to point three first. Um, no, one more thing before we go to point three. Um, in, I believe it's, I don't know if, it, I think it's a fama or, or in a confessio, I don't, I don't remember by heart. It says we should addict ourselves to the true philosophy, lead a worse life, a daily call. Okay, so far so good. But 
and invite many more onto our fraternity. Um, so why is it important? Is it is the egregore so important? Is it that that it calls for? What are the criteria to invite somebody into the fraternity? Uh, what what can show you that that person uh, will be a good Rosicrucian, so to speak? Yeah, it's interesting one actually, and this is one where I might actually. Uh, veer off into the other direction <laughs> because interestingly there is that at the core of the initial manifestos but of course it's important that this kind of uh, calling people into the fraternity was never really answered as such so did they envisage this to just be yeah. be people uh, kind of creating their own groups that they would then bring into the fold. I mean, it is, it's a almost revolutionary call, you know, bring people on board, let's join the fight, let's, let's join the cause for reformation. I think if you look at it more broadly, there's a, there's a very important article. And it's a bit opposed to, to the elitism that it, that, that it seems to have around it, you know? It's cert yeah, it's certainly, it is, it is that interesting a dichotomy between something which can be picked up by anybody but is talking about a small tiny group of people who work in secret and and are you are you um erudite and and worthy enough to to join them that that is a tension there yeah. there's there's a second to the article to cure the sick and that gratis i've always been interested by the second article, which is that they would wear the habit of the culture they existed within. So to me, that has always spoken to me as a call not to proselytize, to not do the work of healing necessarily, um, even as an open Rosicrucian. I mean, I think for them, it was just, you know, you go out and you do this and then we come back and, and we talk about the things we've learned and done and how we're changing things. Um, but you're not doing it, I guess, at the time in a way that might endanger you with the Inquisition or, 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 might, or might cause you some other kind of uh, problems that were prevalent at the time. But it's... Um, so that's always struck me more than the kind of call more people into our fraternity. It's, it's more about bringing more people along into these spaces, no matter what tradition they're from and working together in order to achieve these goals of reformation, these goals of, of improving things in very egalitarian uh, manner. And maybe, maybe that's just, you know, my personal journey speaking more, but I think there is, there is evidence of that in the original texts and manifestos who are kind of speaking into those spaces. Um, there is an, a certain anti-authoritarianism to them, of course, um, speaking against the established Catholic church. Um, but I, I just see this more as a calling people to that universal spiritual Fellowship, rather than trying to tell everybody you must become a Rosicrucian and here's here's a group you should join. I, I'm the kind of person who thinks that that kind of stuff only ever really leads to problems, and I don't I don't think mm. you know the 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 manner in which our connection to the divine is manifest is is through you know, 8 billion different lenses these days. And it is refracted through all of those uh, sparks of, of glittering consciousness. And, and I think that we really need to 
be aware that it's not about funneling people down certain paths anymore, but it is about finding people who are hearing that call, that still voice within that's calling them to that kind of sense of universal harmony, goodness, improvement, reformation for the betterment of all humankind and all nature, importantly. And that's what I see it more as these days. And and again, you can kind of look at different early Rosicrucian authors and they would have different tracks on this. There's some that are quite fundamentalist in their views and there's some that are much more universalist. Um, and so that's part of, the, again, the decentralized nature of it. But I, I tend to fall into that, call people to the gathering of, of those who are seeking spiritual harmony is what I, how I would see that. Right. Well, thank you. Um, so let's go to the, th the third of the three, um, the three pages, so to speak, of, of uh, uh, Christmas spiritual retreat. Um, can you can you say a bit more about that? What how does that look like in in a practical sense mm. in 21st century? Yeah, so spiritual retreat. So if, if personal practice is that kind of daily rhythm of your life that, that creates a spiritual heartbeat to your life, social engagement is really about why are you doing this? What difference are you making? Um, how are you changing the world around you so that the, the, the kind of core of inspiration you're coming into contact with has, has a positive impact? Spiritual retreat are those moments in your life where you're able to strip everything back and enter into a space without duties or obligations or influences and you're just kind of standing there yourself before the divine, before God, before nature and having a very radically honest conversation with who you are and what you're there to be. So it is more about entering into spaces of uh, divine communication and uh, ecstatic experiences that then lead you very strongly down paths of uh, experiential communication with the divine and the metaphysical realms. These things don't often happen in your day-to-day -day practices because they're very devotional. You're often thinking about what you've got to do that day, your other obligations. Sometimes, you know, I'll throw, I'll throw my practices in when I'm on the bus or something like that, just because I want to make sure I do it. Whereas spiritual retreat is much more purposeful and, and because of that, often much more impactful, but equally not something you can do every day unless you go off and join a monastery and that becomes your entire mode of being, which in this day and age is very, very rare. Now, we have quite a lot of examples of this. Um, the most famous one, of course, for Western esotericists is the Book of Abramelin. And so this is talking about lengthy yeah. devotional practices that then culminate over time into kind of two week long secluded uh, scrying conjuration communicative practices in which you are you are having visionary experiences. And and we we have a lot of examples like this in the grimoire tradition, in the esoteric traditions um, that that do this in various different ways. Now, 
that can feel quite daunting, you know, taking um, whether it's six months or 18 months or whatever to do these kinds of things almost feels unachievable. And, you know, in some ways it's meant to feel unachievable because it's for those people who are able to really uh, formulate their life around building up to these kinds of practices. However, when you look back through the grimoire tradition and other things, and they're talking about there's some references to things like your good angel and things like this. And often they're, they're even just talking about, well, you go off into the woods and you, you say a bunch of prayers and then you'll be able to hear this voice. And, um, I found that an interesting juxtaposition between, well, spending an afternoon in the woods or an 18-month monastic kind of uh, devotional experience. Um, And so it's more about what is that concept of spiritual retreat, and it's about removing yourself from all of your day-to-day influences and obligations and, and having a very open, being able to open up your soul and your mind and be very still and be very uh, receptive to what might come through. Um, and so really it's about finding these moments in our lives where we can do that. Now that can be going for a hike in the woods. That, that can be... Um, just finding somewhere secluded for a week that can then also be doing entirely long practices that are very intense and can lead you right to the heights of that kind of holy mountain for those able to do it it can be as i mentioned in the book simply switching off the internet for a week and seeing what happens and see and you know and and maybe that's just me but for me that's quite an eye-opening experience and it's you feel the readjustment taking place and it, it really starts to change um who you are and what you're thinking pretty quickly because we're plugged in now to so much stimulus and so much information that simply switching it off for a week can be a spiritual retreat. <laughs> now we can have a discussion about, about that, but it makes you nervous for two days. <laughs> it does. Yeah. You've got to kind of get through that. You've got to get over that addiction that we all have these days to this. Um, so spiritual retreat, yeah, it's, it's about finding those moments. And again, whatever they are and to whatever extent you can be. And, and, and I want it to be pretty open about the fact that not everybody can live monastic lives, even if for shorter periods of time, not everybody has the capability or a position to do that. But that doesn't mean you can't find these moments of spiritual retreat it can just require a weekend away in the woods or it can just require you just stepping back from everything else um, in order to start listening more to what's there and in a very devotional mindset is important obviously it's not just a retreat you're not just sitting there uh, to to go fishing or something although maybe fishing can be a spiritual retreat for some people but um it is it is very spiritually focused (laughs) it is very devotionally focused of course because you're trying to to enter into those spaces of your being um So there's many examples of it, but really for me, I just wanted to get people thinking about how we incorporate something like that into our lives. I think we're very good at personal practice. I think we're very good at at these daily practices, um, whatever they may be. I think many people are very good as well at social engagement. 
um, whether that's charitable or even just like you're doing with this podcast is a form of social engagement. But I think people are good at that. I think people find it very difficult, the concept of spiritual retreat and what that means. Um, some people, you know, they find it in yoga retreats or they find it, uh, you know, there's various monasteries now you can go with and be with them for a week or something. And there are, there are accessible forms of this. But I really just wanted to get people thinking along those lines of how do I fit that into my life? Because for me, that's a big part of how you really nourish and the rest of your journey and your path with something that is very authentic and is very raw and honest and forces you to confront a lot of your own um, uh, false perceptions of why you might be doing things. And it's important to strip all that back sometimes and come into a very real connection with what we're talking about. Interesting, because, yeah, because um, it's not in many traditions and also even Rosicrucians, but I don't, I don't find that necessity so clearly defined as one of three parts, you know, and I find that very, very interesting. But let's go to social engagement. You just mentioned it, what it can be, but I, I want to push that a bit further because when I read your texts, when I read also an article that you wrote on pansoffers.com um, uh, and I'm going now straight because we otherwise we would be probably running out of time we could talk a lot about other forms of social engagement as well but you come to a point which uh, I found very interesting because I honestly even in the context of western esoteric traditions in general I've hardly ever come across that and you say in your book at some point as it has long been understood physical forms are not the final and only existence that we will inhabit and you say that's like that in your book in another part of the on in that article i just mentioned you say creation takes many forms both evolutionary and involutionary spiritual and material intellectual and emotional its flame flickers in the creation of beings and in their final moments of return its seed can be planted in others etc so that i don't know maybe i'm, I'm completely misunderstanding <coughs> that but um Are you referring to transhumanism here? Are you trans referring to an evolution of mankind in a in a way which is very different from from um, what normally esotericism would talk about? The short answer is yes. That's what I'm referring to. And the longer answer is we are rapidly approaching if not already within it, a period in which our biological evolution is no longer relevant because we are able to dictate the evolution of humanity as a species. And that will come out of scientific, intellectual, commercial, unfortunately, um, motivations. And so we're at that tipping point now Uh, where the thought forms that humanity has is what humanity will become. So the biological evolutionary forces are being superseded by more purposeful intellectual and, and creative evolutionary forces. 
And so that's that point that I'm talking about. And we're starting to see this. And it, it, a lot of it comes first with things like human longevity and extending our lifespans. But a lot of it also then starts to come with this, this kind of synergy we're starting to find with our technology, where suddenly we're talking about in integrating our technology into our brains. We're talking about um really creating different forms of even shared consciousness and other things that are starting to emerge. And what I find vital is that we don't allow forces that are focused on profit and power to be the only ones dictating where this trajectory goes. Because at the moment, they're the ones with all the resources and the means to really decide where this trajectory goes. And so in that very sense of kind of radical reformation that Rosicrucianism has always had, I think we need to be in those spaces talking about what does it look like for the spiritual evolution of humanity and how does that mesh with our technological and scientific progress? How does that mesh with our socioeconomic progressions? Um, and ultimately, what does humanity look like as, as we look thousands of years into the future? And can that have a spiritual core at, at its heart as opposed to one based on profit and, and power? And so that is, is vitally important. It's a very difficult thing to influence, certainly. But I think we have to be having the, the conversation because we can see it all around us. These, these things are progressing and they are occurring with artificial intelligence and other things. And, and how do we speak into those spaces from an esoteric perspective? What does that look like? How can we influence it? And, and I just find that that is the question of our age, really, is what will humanity become and how can we influence that direction? Do you have, I would say, beginnings of answers to those questions? Because, yes, the question is relevant. And of course, um, society must find answers and Esotericism being part of society, uh, esotericism must find answers. But do you have already in mind beginnings of answers of what that could be from an esoteric perspective? Not necessarily. And I think it is a process. So I have uh, one of the things I talk about as well is that um, Rosicrucianism has always been closely connected to utopianism whether that's Andre's Christianopolis or Francis Bacon's New Atlantis or even the kind of Campanella's City of the Sun, of which there were, there were two disciples of Campanella that are said to have been in the circle of, of people around Andre and others that were creating the original manifesto. So Rosicrucianism and Utopianism have often been closely linked. And that is evocative to me because I grew up and the 20th century was all about dystopian visions of the future and I found you know read these things voraciously and Aldous Huxley's and your George Orwell's and and uh, Zamyatin's and other people like that um, creating all of these kind of dystopian visions that 
were very had a lot of foresight to them, as we've learned. Um, unfortunately, it didn't necessarily change the trajectory of where things were going because we seem to have ended up in their novels sometimes. But it strikes me that part of the solution is to reinvigorate the sense of utopian thinking rather than dystopian thinking and to not shy away from trying to formulate positive visions of the future. Now, for me, again, because I'm, I'm very cautious of being prescriptive because, you know, a lot of, a lot of, um, things that can be presented as utopian can be very elitist or can be hiding various forms of of rather oppressive structures under their their glossy exteriors um but i keep returning back to these concepts of egalitarianism harmony peace truth is very important in this day and age and how do we build things that are helping bolster these these very kind of deep-seated spiritual values and virtues so that they can really be provided as an alternative to a lot of the structures that seek to exploit us in various ways. Um, and, and so for me, it's more process-driven than saying this is where we need to end up because, again, it's that constant process of discernment and change and and you you can't just have something that's fixed or that you're doggedly trying to to create just one thing i don't think you know history is littered with with mistakes that have been caused by people being too dogmatic about their view of the way the world should be but for me it is about reinvigorating that sense of utopian thinking and from a spiritual perspective, again, and I don't think we should shy away from this, that can often be quite visionary and that can often be quite prophetic. But we have to mm. be very careful about that, of course, because prophecy has been used for harm a lot more often than it has been used for good, unfortunately. So, but I think we're here as esotericists, we're here as people who are, who are experiencing the spiritual realms and spheres in different ways. And we know there are sources of inspiration. We know there are visionary elements to it. And we have to help find ways for those things to start connecting with our technological and, and social evolution um, so that they can start helping steer it where it needs to be. Is Rosicrucianism a call for spiritual activism? Would you say that? I would say so, yes. It's, it's always been a call for reformation at its very core. And it has always been about speaking into that space where, where you, as, as a practitioner of, of esotericism and the spiritual paths, need to find a very strong core of your practice so that you can then have a very tangible impact on the world around you again cure the sick and that gratis you're not doing it for money or wealth or power you're doing that as as a service and i think that is again that gratis word is very important um and so all of these things come out of spiritual practice we've seen that and we've we've seen it um throughout history as well even in the darkest moments of history there are those who are able to find a spark of hope that keeps them going and eventually they're able to transform 
very dark things into more positive um, outcomes, uh, you know, often with a lot of self-sacrifice or, or violence put against them, certainly. So, yes, I, I think a form of spiritual activism is required. And I th- Rosa, not just Rosicrucianism, but it has always had that sense of reformation at its core, which helps kind of just create these frameworks of spiritual activism and and speak into them. Maybe this would be a nice final question, even though I, I hate to say this final question because it's nice. It would be nice to talk on about that. But um, is, well, Rosicrucianism, if you just throw in the word in discussion, it's seen as something rather traditional, but is in fact, in your view, uh, the Rosicrucianism of the 21st century and maybe also the historical one, is it progressive? Is it not at all traditional, but progressive or is it both? It's it's had different sides of that coin at different points in history. <laughs> so at some points, it's seen as very conservative. It's seen as very pietist, and it's seen as or or is um, uh, trying to to kind of bolster up that sense of religious duty in an increasingly secular world. That can be seen as very conservative. But I think it's very important that we don't just relegate our religious and spiritual impulses to conservatism. (laughs) And I think they are also deeply progressive. One of the pieces I close the the book with is on the the theology of Martin Luther King Jr. and his ability to take that kind of prophetic voice into very progressive uh, civil justice spaces. And obviously that is that is the pinnacle of an example that that we can kind of look to and and try to emulate in our own very small ways. But but I do see it as progressive. It has in the past sometimes been conservative. But again, it's about speaking into the moment that we're in and it's about progressive and conservative, I think, have become almost very loaded terms because they've become so politicized. So essentially, if we try and take ourselves off of that spectrum Mm. and really what we're talking about is harmony, love, light, peace and truth, these kind of virtues, not in dogmatic ways, but really trying to grapple with the esoteric core of what they're talking about. I, I feel those are deeply reformative and progressive things. Some people may see them as conservative, but... I think those terms have become so deeply politicized that really we just need to be talking about harmony and peace and egalitarianism and how do we work in service for all of humanity and in balance with nature on this planet that we currently exist on in a way that that will bring that will uplift everybody. And I know that is a very, you know, doe-eyed, rose-tinted glasses maybe for the, is appropriate. But, um, but if you don't start from those kind of lofty ideals, then you often pull yourself short by just trying to figure out ways that it can never work. And, and I think we need to enter more into those spaces, those inspirational spaces, And for those of us who who are going deeper down these these kind of esoteric practices, I think we're well aware that there are certain visionary things that start to emerge. 
and we need to find ways to start talking about them with one another more openly and in a way that is very receptive to hearing the findings that other people are bringing up. Um, and these things will start to, to help us form new paths and symbols and movements that, that will emerge into the context that we're currently in. And, and that is about us connecting with the great universal mind and the great uh, macrocosmic, microcosmic reality and, and the, the divine reality that surrounds it. So all different traditions, Rosicrucian or not, in Western esotericism, I think are, are pretty much on the same page when it comes to a lot of that stuff. And so that's why I find a lot of this quite exciting but it's, it's also a bit, it's important because if we don't enter into these spaces, our future is being created for us and we need to start creating it together. Absolutely. Um, well, I think this was a, a great final word, Robert. Thank you so much for that. Um, um, are there any projects of you that will be upcoming that we should be aware of or um, you want to talk about here briefly? I mean, at the moment, I'm just really trying to get these conversations going wherever I can. And for me, that often is, is just in these kind of podcasts or uh, various groups, uh, group kind of study group environments that are published online. You can check out my website for any future projects. Uh, futureconscience.com is the, the website. There's writings going back 10 years. A lot of it is speaking more on the kind of um, technological side of things. But equally now in, in the last couple of years, a lot more openly about the esoteric side of things. And so that's where you'll find future projects. There's another couple of things in the works, obviously, but I'm, I'm a big believer that you don't mention them until they've happened. Otherwise, your brain thinks you've already finished them. So it's, it's important not to mention things until they're released. Uh, well, or the magician in me says it's, it's don't name it because it can be influenced. <laughs> exactly. Uh, well, thank you. Thank you so much. And when you go, dear listeners, when you go on future conscience as a, as a, at the, on the website and I will link it of course on the show notes uh, that's for sure you will be surprised by the title page by the, the the graphics and the image of the title page doesn't look at all like a Rosicrucian website <laughs> thank you Robert thank you so much and um, well good luck with all your projects and um, thank you for being with us here today oh thank you for having me it's been a real pleasure thank you Thank you.
piece, Beautiful Lights, the third piece by our guest Robert Gordon, who spoke about 21st century Rosicrucianism, or as I named the show, Rosicrucian Utopia, but of course also about Rosicrucian history. And I believe it was a really exciting episode that we had thanks to him here today. And thanks to all of you, this episode could be produced because you are the listeners and I do it for you every week. Well, we are almost every week now above the 4,500 mark. That's really, really great. Thank you to all of you listening and thanks to those few of you who support the show, who make it possible. And you should think about it. It should be also an increasing number of supporters when we have an increasing number of listeners. Don't you think so? So please consider becoming a patron and make this show possible also for the future. Okay, thank you all. Thanks to Robert Gordon for his music, for his insight, for his talk. And thanks to the listeners who were with me here today. And thanks to the patrons. Great. So next week, what's up next week? Um, exciting news. John Michael Greer is back again on the show. It's his fourth appearance actually on Thos Hermes podcast. I'm really happy to have him as almost a regular, you could say here. And this time we are going to speak about the Fellowship of the Hermetic Rose and what that is and what he has to say about it. You will find out next week, which will already be November, November the 6th, right? Okay, so, well, have a nice Halloween and um, I hope you are going to have a good week all together and we meet again next Sunday and in the meantime, take care. Stay tuned. Hear you soon.